Hello, welcome to the San Clemente podcast. Do you like horror? I'm not really a horror girly, but Toby Lloyd's book Fervor, I loved it. Toby has published stories and essays in Carve magazine, the LA Review of Books, and a bunch of other places. He has an MFA in creative writing from NYU, and he was also longlisted for the 2021 V.S. Pritchett Short Story Prize. This is his debut novel, and I can't imagine a better debut. It's an amazing story that I don't want to spoil anything, even the blow. I'm like, oh, you should just go in and read it without knowing anything. But in short, it incorporates a lot of Jewish folklore and looks at this family, the Rosenthal's, as they grapple with the death of their grandfather, his stories from surviving the Holocaust and what it means for who they are, what it means for their paths in life, because he gives them different prophecies effectively on his deathbed. And the parents in the Rosenthal family have a very complicated relationship with religion and Toby is so elegant in exploring how that affects the kids, how that affects their identities. I don't want to spoil anything more for it, but I also can't stop talking about this book. So go get yourself a copy. But yeah, I mean, yeah. thank you so much for sitting down to interview. I think Berber is like such a unique project. I keep talking to my friends about it and they're all like, actually, like, can I just borrow your copy? <laughs> One of my friends is called Lilith. Oh, right. Yeah. He's like, Jewish horror? Yes. Yes, please. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I mean, actually, the Lilith tale is, uh, it, someone's got to do that as a like modern novel. Maybe someone already has it. I've missed it. But I, I, I feel like I, it could be cool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Her mom did like um, gender studies or something at uni and then was like, do you know what? I'm going to call my child. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's this great, I don't know if, if you're a Primo Levi fan, but there's this great bit in one of his books. I think it's, um, I think it's Moments of Reprieve, which is a book he wrote about his time in Auschwitz that was like, like episodes that didn't make it into This is a Man, if, if This is a Man, mm-hmm. rather. And, uh, there's just this very strange story where he meets this other inmate. He's like, starts talking about Lilith and Primo Levi's never heard of Lilith. He's like, what do you mean you've never heard of Lilith? Let me tell you all the stories about Lilith. And oh uh, it's just these two guys in, you know, in the death camp talking about like Jewish folklore. Um, anyway, that that's my jam. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. They, I mean, these stories are so interesting. Like they almost don't get told in like the wider historical narrative like when you tell the yeah. one about Chopin and everything yeah. it's like so it yeah it sort of like gives a context to the days as opposed to like a wider I haven't read if this is a man though I read if this is a woman which is a different take like it's a much more historical perspective right. from what I understand it's like a historian sitting down doing Ravensbrook oh right interesting. it's very interesting she talks a lot about the poets there and that's what I remember from it but I think I read it too young I was probably like 15 and is it like I don't I don't know the but is it sort of like a, a feminine like because it sounds like the title is mm, obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. so is it like a feminist sort of let's think about this from a woman's perspective kind of take on on Le- Levy or no well, it's sort of like um, the Ravensbrück camp was I think entirely female and so like even the right. guards were like mostly yeah. women so it's kind of like 
And then, then the it was in the Soviet Union, so they kind of raised it to the ground and didn't really talk about it. So it's kind of her uncovering like the documents and everything, and also I guess like a feminist take on how like how the guards could all be women, right? And also do that, which is like sounds like quite you know, of course they could, but I feel like in the narratives we don't get as much. No, I I I thank you for telling me about this book. I had not heard of it, and it oh, it's sounds good. very very interesting. And I cannot recommend. If this is a man or all of Primo Levi enough. Like if the actually if there's one writer who without whom further would have been impossible, um, it would it would be him. Um yeah, yeah absolutely. Um it, I to me, the one of the great writers of all time, but especially one of the great writers of the last century. And um all of his books actually are wonderful in in different ways, and and that that's his first book, If This Is a Man, is probably the one to start with. Yeah, I mean, you literally have a, a very refined lecturer talking about it in your book. Yeah. <laughs> it's very good praise. <laughs> yes, yes, it, I suppose it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you study all this stuff? Is that how you came to it? Um, study is a, a, a grandiose word for, I mean, in, in no formal context. Um, yeah. I did an, a lot of reading um, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, so on the uh, historical side, I read a lot about um, Europe and, and and Germany and Poland um, in the years leading up to the war. I read a lot of um, Holocaust memoirs, um, Primo Levi's being probably the most important to me, um, watched films and so on. Um, uh, Cloud Lanceman's massive film, Shoah, um, I think is essential viewing for anyone who wants to write about or think about more about the um the holocaust um which is i, I don't know if you know it but it, it's like a 17 hour documentary and his his concept was simply that this is in the 70s he would go to the sites of former camps and he would talk to everyone he could interview including survivors including guards you know um so perpetrators and and just try and reconstruct it, but verbally. So there's nothing, um, there's no imagery. There's famously, there is footage of the liberation and so on. There's none of that in Lanceman's films. It's just talking heads to camera, trying to describe what happened. And some shots of, of like Treblinka now um, and and um, other camps, hell no, um, now, but um, yeah, uh, well, not now his now the 70s but um yeah. but yeah no, no sort of historical footage and it, it's it's an amazing um an amazing film project actually yeah i mean it's so important that these voices are like preserved like in the the present almost like i think the films that we see now like they're really interesting but a lot of them are not from they're from like recorded accounts of survivors as opposed to yeah i suppose yeah like a, a lived experience but then you also kind of talk about the complexity of telling those stories and memory and the relationship that survivors have with that. What was like your inspiration there? Um, very simply that I think, um, well, not simply at all. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> no, I, start with a like, simple... I had this for the end of the interview yeah. and now I'm like, so the Holocaust, tell me. Well, we're, we're, we're in it now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, to, my simple starting point would be that um, I think writing about, um, the Holocaust is fundamentally ethically complex. Mm. And that is not to say 
I don't think it should be done, um, obviously. Otherwise, I would not have written further. Um, but there are things that one shouldn't do. And on the flip side, there is a certain necessity about it. We, I don't think a response to a, a horror of that magnitude, um, uh, whether we're talking about the Holocaust or, or I don't know, something else, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the humankind have done them pretty horrible things. I don't think simply turning away and saying we must not look there um, narratively is the right answer either. Um, and then, I mean, where this comes up in my book is Hannah, one of the central figures, is obviously writing her father-in-law's memoir about his time in the camps. And she uh, he doesn't want her to do it. And that's that's the, the sort of um, ethical tension that I found that that drew me into the story. And because not only not only does he not want her to do it, um, she she thinks she's doing something good by writing down his story. She thinks she's doing some sort of favour to humanity and 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 the victims. And if that sounds if that sounds grand, well, Hannah is a little grand, I'm afraid. Yeah, she's an amazing character to read. Like the voices that you do are very, very strong and defined. And reading her from like her perspective and then seeing it from the outside, like you, there's like a real jarring difference that was really fun to explore. Great. I'm mm. I'm so glad uh, that you say that. I mean, for me, character yeah. is, um, is, is one of the defining parts of fiction, not the only thing, but it's one of the things I think fiction is really, really good at is... Um, is allowing like com- competing views of the world and competing like understanding of the world to sit side by side um something one doesn't often experience in life we're so like in ourselves you know yeah that's so true with these characters and especially with stories surrounding like the fallout of the holocaust and those kind of things like you tend to get yeah like one approach rather than like a much more complex ethical view of it I don't know if you've seen I don't know if it's out it, it's out but um the zone of interest no like I, I can't wait to people. see it um it, I I was a big fan of the book actually um, yeah yeah and uh and I'm I'm very excited about the film it looks really good you've seen it yeah there was like a like a press thing that yeah. I went to and I haven't done any coverage of yet but it was it was very interesting I I don't know though if it was a bit one note, just because it was like, you know, people lived alongside these camps and you're like, yeah. But like there wasn't so much of like an ethical ending to it. But then at the same time, I don't think that's what it's trying to do. I think it is kind of almost like a, I think it's trying to throw you into that one experience and then you leave it and then you have all your thoughts afterwards. But I found that further probably gives you like a much more even without mentioning all these like horrendous people, it gives you like a really interesting explanation, like exploration of one person's kind yeah. of like ethical challenges within that. Yeah, I was, I, so I was inspired by a couple of writers. One one was people I've mentioned before, who's, he wrote about this thing called the gray zone and he it's his term for um basically rejecting this kind of binary between perpetrators and victims and there is very important to say there was such a thing as straightforward perpetrators and there is such a thing as straightforward victims and, and it's important to run those categories to exist 
but there is also an entire spectrum in between um and what he was talking about is you know um what do we think of someone who is sent to um a concentration camp because they're jewish or, or or for whatever reason and they have the opportunity to make their life um slightly better for themselves by um doing the regime's bidding um do we think of that person as less ethically compromised than you know an ss guard um and you know you can think through that's one situation many many situations where um people actually exist on this strange spectrum between victim and perpetrator um which is is it's very uncomfortable sometimes to think about these things but i think it's important if you want to have a true understand or a, a truer understanding of the moral complexity of living through that time um and the, i said there were two writers who inspired me the other one was a a writer um i, I don't know if, if you know edward p jones's work um who wrote a novel called um uh what was it called the known world um and it, it's actually one of my favorite novels um, of recent times and he's writing about something very different he's an african-american author he's writing about slavery but he's to me is very interested in that gray zone and so he has characters like a, a young black man who's born into slavery is ultimately um, gets his freedom and then becomes a slaver and how do we view that man compared to a white slaver how do we view the white slaver who is comparatively kind to his slaves versus the one who is very very sadistic and you know all these sorts of ethical positions i think um are, are very very rich narratively and i was yeah i mean edward b jones is a total master and i recommend that novel to anyone um but he was i, I reread that book as I, as I was writing further as well that was very important to me you know it's exactly what i was thinking when you were talking just now is it's such a relatable generational trauma like so many people around the world because these systems of power they need like you were saying they need to sort of like create a hierarchy so these things can be carried out the you know whether it's economic or whether it's all these other goals that they have and that is probably something that I mean I don't have that kind of experience but I, I suspect that people get a lot out of that when they read it well, I hope so. I hope, you yeah. know, the hope is always people see something that is sort of true in some sense. So, yeah, however, yeah. However wild your fiction might be, and bits of further a little bit wild, I'd say. Um, yeah, but in in a in a classy way, like in an indie okay. film way. You know okay. what I mean? Like, like it's definitely it's horror, but it feels like kind of more like like when I heard it was horror, I was expecting like you know lots of gore and lots of yeah. like you know something completely different. But it's very like. Um, yeah, you know, like in an indie film. I don't know if you've seen like Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I haven't. It's, it's uh, on the list. It's very much, yeah. There's like kind of a, sim a similar but not similar ghost where it's a bit like, is there a ghost? No. Is it time travel? No. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like symbolic, I guess, in that film. Whereas it feels like a maybe a bit more literal. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that that's up, up for readers, really, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I like that you've mentioned film because fil film was very important to me writing the book, um, particularly like horror films. Um, and yeah, what I would describe as sort of 
maybe to use your term, classier horror films, um, St. Maud, uh, The Witch, and mostly A24 films of the last sort of five, six years, um, where I think something really interesting happening with horror, which is that people are using, writers and directors are using the horror genre to to make quite serious films about character. And that historically, horror has often sort of hovered in this kind of b-movie space of film where it's just kind of a, a thrill ride where's the next you know um where's the next jump scare or whatever and don't be wrong there have always been like horrors that are not that and you know i'm a big fan of the exorcist or the shining or rosemary's baby um but but a lot of horrors has i think often been just quite silly and just kind of how do i how do i give you sort of a yeah a, a, a jump scare and Recently, I think there's a lot of very much more moving films coming out that are like using using horror tropes to explore just very dark parts of human experience. Yeah, and they they they're so useful for exploring like Get Out and stuff like that. These kind yeah, I of mean, Jordan Peele is, has to be part of this conversation. Yeah, and yeah, like his films. I think like I, I actually love all three of his films. Um, Get Out probably my favorite, but um, yeah, I mean he's you know he's writing in an adult and serious way about things like race in America, but he's using the like very much like horror and sci-fi tropes to do it. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. What was the point for you of making this a horror? Yeah. Good, good question. I, I, the, the book, it comes from certain different, like certain different sort of origin points that like kind of converge on the book. Um, one of them is the Bible and uh which i read with great enthusiasm <laughs> in the years running up to uh Ferber's publication um and i should add great atheist enthusiasm so reading it as a collection of um you know wondrous tales and what the thing about the bible i think is that um there's a very good essay slash book by um the literary critic who the world's most famous literary critic harold bloom that's his name his name escaped from him um and he argues in this in his book that the bible is often misunderstood generically people misunderstood the the genre of bits of the bible um and that he says that he, what he calls normative judaism um and you could add normative christianity to that sort of takes these tales and denies them of their true genre as he sees it, which might be comedic or might be, I think we could even say horror, and makes them instead always morally instructive fables, which I don't think is the best way of reading all of the Bible. And mm -hmm. you, you do have the incursion of the supernatural. You have, um, you know, the mass death of the firstborn. Are these not are these not scenes from a horror film uh, um, or or a tower of fire? Um, you know all these sorts of things um so thinking of the bible as like source material for sort of a, a kind of jewish horror story um yeah i think is, is is one of the ways that i ended up where i did yeah when you read some of the stories like when you talked about moses there are even bits of the story that like i didn't know about having you know learned it from like the prince of egypt where you're like yep. wow like even yeah, there's so much. Like, I came at it from like a Christian family, so like a Christian perspective. Even stuff like with um, 
Judas, like you read these religious texts and you think that's pretty messed up. Mm. Like, like with Ramesses, like he had no choice. So that doesn't make it like a story of betrayal. It makes it a story of like something a lot more sinister. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think um, it's very common for writers to revisit um, ancient texts. And um, I think part of the part of the reason we do that is not sort of some just kind of boring repetition but is is to to reshape it to fit our times in some way you know mm. um the endless sort of revisiting of the classics that we have um and and i my feeling as is that there are um in general a, a lot of atheists like myself been too quick to to let let believers have the bible as sort of their property and i was yeah and i was interested in sort of co-opting it for my own literary end yeah that's so interesting as well because I was going to ask you about that whether you came at it from an atheist perspective or not because yeah like these texts are uh, I did a, a module so UCL has like a really strong Hebrew studies department okay. it's a secular university but they because so much of Hebrew study is secular they like have this amazing department and one of the takeaways from that was like how much of you know ancient jewish texts are to be interpreted understood completely differently and they're not necessarily like considered completely religious texts anymore or like they have a very different interpretation now and like yeah scholarly perspective was really interesting in that i would if i was going to do another degree i think that would be a really interesting one to do i think it would yeah 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 what was your like inspirational bit of uh like the story that kind of stuck with you through writing this because you've got so many in there this, yeah the sort of beating heart of the novel in a way is is the story of, of Jephthah and his daughter um which is um retold actually in the novel itself um so yeah that that was very important and uh and also the so the epigraph of the novel um which you might remember um, is um, it's a it's a very small story. Um, in the version I quote is very small; it's like four lines. But um, it's about the um, wonder rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov, who was the founder of um, Hasidism, modern Hasidism in uh, the 18th century, and he he has this student who's been listening to everything he said. Um, for, for decades and he comes to him and he says um, to Rabbi Israel I've written down all your sayings I've created the Torah of Rabbi Israel and then the punch of the stories the master um, read what was written and he says not one word of this is my Torah um, there's different versions of that tale and some versions tell you what he means and I don't like that because I think it's in in the version which I've quoted um, which is uh by Mayor Levin's rendering of it, who's an American writer, um, is wonderfully ambiguous. Does he mean that the student has misheard him? Does he mean that um, what sort of was maybe meant for a particular occasion, sort of spontaneous talk, once it gets set down and paper comes to mean something else and it becomes untrue, um, maybe he's just changed his mind. We don't know. Um, but this idea that there's something very dangerous to trying to capture someone else in a book and that the book will 
in, inevitably be a departure from what it's set out to be. Um, so that idea was important to Berber, as I think will make sense to people who read the novel. That was my first note. That was like I started the book and I wrote in here, like, opening. <laughs> because it's such an interesting way to, like, start the book. And it kind of, I guess, ties in a lot with, like, even Hannah's journey where she the more she writes down the story the kind of the less that she has a grasp on it as she understands what's really going on in the lives of these other people yeah and um the i mean i think one of hannah's chief characteristics is is her arrogance and i think um i mean the words author and authority are um etymologically the same and there's a sense that to decide to be an author you are imposing your view on onto like and a novelist creates a world so you are you are you know hence flaubert's metaphor of the author being like a god in their universe or something like that um yeah and so to me hannah's very much that she is the author who assumes total authority to say how things are and she will not be contradicted yeah how do you tackle that as a writer you know what i mean like how do you cope with that yourself I think the yeah I, um it was very important for me to try and give all the characters a fair hearing and so I you know I've already mentioned that I'm an atheist I did not want to write a book where the atheist character Tovia is always right and everyone else is always wrong um that would be I think quite a shallow book and it would um I didn't want to do that too I wanted to take my characters seriously um whatever i might think about them and give them you know the the best sort of arguments or the most powerful rhetoric that i could even even if only articulated themselves sometimes we're not talking about necessarily something they say to another character but a thought they might have that makes it seem reasonable that they think the things they do think um and that is that was my way of trying to not let my own prejudices and biases and because we all have those crush out the story and crush out the other characters yeah i mean you do it well like, even with kate she's probably quite a good like medium between these different things like her sort of relationship with religion is really interesting and it's never like i suppose fully divine de like defined at the end but it is sort of her not i suppose not letting go of that part of herself at the same time yeah, and I, I, I'm glad that you said she's sort of in the middle, and that that was kind of my idea with her is that you'd have these two poles of Hannah um, and Tovia um, in this sort of spectrum between zealous religion and zealous atheism, and Kate is somewhere in the middle, and uh, happy happy to sort of talk to both sides in a sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, she's kind of, um, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, Addison. Yes. <laughs> that energy of like, okay. But she's intrigued to like, more than like, maybe she ought to be. But she's also not like, so like, overwhelmed by it. I'm actually a big fan of Jekyll and Hyde. I think it's a, it's a book that, um, it's, it, it's like, it's, it's own worst enemy is its fame it's like it's just absurdly fa like the title is absurdly famous that you it's one yeah. of those books that everyone thinks they've read it either they haven't and they think they've read it you know so but i think it stands up i think i think it's a really good little yeah. little tale 
And it ties into so many different things. Like we, I did it for GCSE because I had yeah. like the smartest teacher in the department and everyone else was doing like 200 page like novels from the 90s. And she was like, no, no, we're just going to do 75 pages and this will set you up for life. And she was right. Like the more you read it, the more you're like, oh, yeah. That like you can see it mapped out through literature. Yeah. I, and I've in fact taught it at GCSE. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. That must have been really fun. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the, the language is a bit of a, can be barrier, but because it's, it's quite full of sort of stuffy Victorian archaisms, um, which, you know, <laughs> yeah. I love, but, uh, can be difficult with, uh, with, you know, um, reluctant 15 and 16 year olds, but, you know, they get there. <laughs> so do you teach English as well? Um, I used to teach in a school, um, and nowadays I do, um, sort of one-on-one tuition um yeah. and some freelance jobs i have a i go to I work at a um a pru people referral unit um once a week which is if you know what that is it's a school where like students who have not got on with mainstream education um end up and uh so yeah i i, I keep my hand in with education a bit yeah 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 i mean a bunch of my friends have just started like their teacher training and everything and it's so interesting and they're all in like the kind of north london schools as well which is like so interesting to like hear about i live in north london now oh great like did, yeah well no to be fair i'm in west london i know i said that i was in north london before <laughs> but it's sort of it's not that far i'm in maidavale so it's like yeah. near enough yeah so have you always lived in north london uh never lived in north london really uh, oh my yeah. goodness yeah um i grew up in west london yeah uh moved away to go to uni went to new york for a few years um came back mostly lived in south london yeah um never i've always admired yeah. north london you've always well that's quite it's handy, a good time there <laughs> yeah you can pop over but then you're not writing about like where you live yeah yeah it's like a bit of a bit of a healthy distance i guess it is yeah yeah, yeah. um it's Did good you... for uh there's a lot of good um Jewish bookshops up there. I, I mean, a lot of a lot of my um library of it's hard to find like like the some things I've been talking about, the Hasidic tales and, and so on and, and uh works of Kabbalah and uh, mostly reading sort of English translations of Yiddish. Um it's not easy to find that stuff at a lot of places. But um but if you haunt your uh your second-hand bookshops around Golders Green, around, you know, Archway and places like that. That's where you get them. I'm going to have to tell my friend Lilith that because she, I guess like a lot of characters in your book, her granddad came across from Germany when he was a kid to like escape. And they couldn't transport. Yeah, I think so, but I don't, I don't know enough to like. Yeah. But, um, and then he forgot how to speak it, I think, from what she was saying. Well, like he knew how to speak it a bit, but. We we're talking about it literally when we we're talking about your book and I can't exactly remember anything. Her gran also spoke German. But anyway, so she went and she's gone and she's like learned it again. Oh great. And she find I think she would find Yiddish translations of stuff really, really interesting. It feels like a lot of responsibility, I guess. Like when you write about the generational trauma of everything, like what you keep and what you don't keep. You know what I mean? Because you're sort of inheriting a history that's almost like frozen, I guess, for a lot of people. Like it stops when people had to change their lives or something absolutely yeah and i mean the you know specifically the um yiddishkeit um 
when being Yiddish culture uh, is in real danger of just disappearing, you know, um, altogether. And Isaac Bashevis Singer was the first writer to win, first Yiddish writer to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, I think in like the 70s, or maybe the 80s. And a lot of people will say, uh, they're probably right, he will also be the last. Like it seems, you know, yeah. extremely unlikely that a, a writer of Yiddish will ever, ever reach that level of prominence again. Um, which is a sad thing if you if you yeah. if you're admirer of, of the culture as I am. There's a um a comedy club in New York. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um Stephen Fry did like a, a it was called like Planet Word or something. It was another one we had to watch at school. And it was so interesting because he went and he spoke to all these like New York comedians who like keep up with Yiddish because yeah. the language has like a specific like leniency towards comedy, like jokes just land better. Right. Or, like the the ones that they were talking about. And it was like a really, really interesting insight into the whole language and like the history of it. Yeah, that sounds cool. I mean, yeah. also, I, I, for the record, I'm, I'm not a, not a speaker. And, and if, I, I mean, I made a, a sort of some efforts to learn a bit um, while writing the book. Um, and, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a great book actually by Leo Rostin, who's a comic writer called The Joy of Yiddish. And it's uh, it's a sort of, dictionary but it's um very small you know it, it's a very few number of entries and the entries are quite expansive and he'll give you he'll tell you a joke that uses the word and stuff but that's that's fun reading and you know like like pretty much any um jew i grew up with some of the words around me you know but mm. um yeah i'd love to learn it was one of my life goals oh that's such a good life goal to have as well like yeah and it's not so difficult because it's Germanic, right? So you can, yeah, yeah, like it's, uh, right. It's, it's and but but with the Hebrew alphabet. So if if you're also not a Hebrew speaker or reader, which I'm also not, that's the additional hurdle. Yeah, there was oh my gosh, there was someone we studied. Um, oh, Mendelssohn, I think. Who I was in the poet or the musician? Uh, the the writer. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. Didn't he, did he use German, what was it? Did he use the Yiddish, but with the German lettering or something? Quite possibly, yeah. It was, I can't remember what it was, but it was really interesting because it was basically him, like, showing the, the complexities of, like, people speaking the languages in Germany. Oh, it would have been such a good fact, but I've completely forgotten it, so... I'll look it up later. No, it's just a thing. Now I'm just like, there's something. Yeah, you can Google it later. But yeah, what was your perspective with uh, Todia, the as a character? Um, so he, to my, I mean, he's sort of born out of. Um, sometimes a character comes to something very simple, and um, in his case, it was. Um, I wondered what it would be like to grow up with very strong. Uh, atheist convictions from a young age in a very very religious family um and have to keep those convictions to yourself um to you know um for, for obvious reasons that you know you fear censure or worse being expelled um and uh you, you know there are stories probably stories in all religions but there's certainly stories in in very very religious um jewish uh communities of of children being like disowned and and to the extent of like their parents having funerals for them because they because they opt out of the religion so 
that's how high the stakes are. And so to be born into a family um, like that. And of course, Togo can't know quite how bad it will be because no one's ever done it. Like none of neither his siblings have said, I'm not religious, mom and dad. How are you going to react? So he doesn't he doesn't know what that reaction will be. And I was interested in how that might what kind of young man that might form. Um, and so, yeah, that's the character who arrives at Oxford it, it is the character who's sort of had that kind of conflict um, nestling inside him all his life. Yeah, he's an interesting character to explore because I think everyone can think of at least one person at uni who kind of is like a really difficult confrontational character who says stuff in lectures that you go, oh, my God, like, why? Why have you said that? So like to actually sort of like get his perspective and really like unpack that is like a really, yeah, it's like a really nice reflection point, I think, for most people. Yeah, and I, I'm and I did want him to be a little bit unbearable. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, um, and I think I mean a, a novel that I love um, is which a lot of people love is Secret History um, uh, by Donna Tartt, and in certain ways I think there's certain correspondences between uh, a character like Tovia and Henry in that novel, um, the and it's that super serious young often man. Um, often young man who's like read way too much and basically conducts themselves like a 55 year old professor rather than a 19 year old undergraduate um but i i think it, it, in secret history what i mean this was what i where what i wanted to do differently i think she makes she gives henry too much personal charm and i don't really there's something about it that I think if someone like Henry were to step into your university seminar, people would be like, this is weird. Why won't he leave? I don't yeah. think I don't think he would instantly sort of have this coterie of like um, admirers and lovers around him. That's, that's my <laughs> suspicion. And, and, and hence Tovia, I guess. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that's a much more honest depiction of of that kind of person. But gives gives like a real he's almost like a funny bridge into that reality like it's almost like he's the bridge not Kate in a funny way but I guess like almost as as a writer were you kind of like willing him to kind of meet more like go outside of himself or was it always that that would be a a struggle that he might never achieve yeah it's it's funny um I guess the question that's forming itself is to what extent as a writer do you want your characters to like make decisions that make them happier <laughs> um like it, and in a certain sense like you do want to like oh why, why don't you try this and this will fix you but but of course characters tend to be more vivid on the page more alive when things are going wrong and you know you sort of have to and you, you can't just like keep raining hell on them for few hundred pages a because it's too easy and b because it becomes stale or whatever so you have to sort of set them up to like you know little moments where it seems like the introvert will suddenly break out of themselves and make lots of friends or the but then you have to sort of keep them in keep you have to keep their conflicts close to the surface i think yeah what was it about sort of bringing that dark academia oxford element that excited you because i guess it could have been anywhere yeah um i guess the the lecture that you referred to earlier given by um the 
great and made up scholar Eli Schultz. He's very believable. Um, I was almost going to Google him. Oh, good, good. Uh, my editor actually asked me when he read the first, you know, draft that he said, "Is this guy real or made up?" And I was like, "Yes." I mean, that means it worked. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that lecture was maybe the first thing I wrote actually in the novel um, before I had in my head the book that is now further. I had that lecture or some version of that. Um, and because I knew that I always wanted that to play a part, it then, it then because that lecture in my head took place at the Chabad Society in Oxford. Um, and it, I don't know, this, this scene was was very much just there for me and I'd written out and I was quite happy with how it came out of the page. And, and then when I started writing this other story about the Rosenthal's and the grandfather dying, I knew that someone has to end up in Oxford to be at this lecture, which sounds like it's a yeah. stupid way of writing a novel, but it's it's no, what I did. <laughs> yeah, no, I find that really interesting, like talking to writers or even like script writers as well, like what has to happen. And there's like, there is like a deep, almost like subconscious logic to all of it. Like it, it works really well. It feels, did you go? I did go to Oxford, yes. Yeah, okay. Because, like, it feels very vivid and very real and, like, all the little details. And, like, have you seen Saltburn recently? I have seen Saltburn. Because it's, like, a couple years after. It's it's very... I mean, watching Saltburn, I was like, oh, yeah, this this is, like, my... This is, like, my Oxford. This is... Yeah. Not, not, nothing that happens in the film. Just the, <laughs> the songs that are playing in the pub and, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's crucially just pre the peripheral proliferance proliferation whatever it's just pre-iphones being everywhere and everyone having a smartphone it's just like so the technology is sort of there but it's not like everyone's googling everything in their pocket every five minutes it's it's before that um yeah sort of water yeah they they have to go off and then search something up yeah on their their rooms yeah 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 yeah. and then that becomes part of the narrative or like the the ipods the everyone playing music on their iPods I was like yeah yeah that's a nice image right there like you do get a little like um time capsule I guess of like not very long ago at all but like exactly what's happened with Saltburn kind of yeah yeah although I guess like even 2006-2008 that's the the iPhone difference is is that right not the iPod Um, yeah 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 um I funny enough I actually as you wanted to you know a little peek behind the curtain my instinct was to keep the dates very blurry yeah. and for it to all take place in a sort of rough present tense like you know um and my editors were quite firmly like we want to know like what year they start at Oxford we want to know what year like this happens um and that made me look up a lot of the sort of like small like tiny stuff like when did live journal become a thing and stuff like that so that the references were all right and worked with the timeline um yeah so there you go that's that's how that came about interesting i wonder why because i suppose like things do change so fast in the modern world that like the difference between like two years is like a massive cultural shift like it makes huge difference and even when you talk about stuff with israel like there is like such a time specific thing to some of these events that impact people like a really far distance away that I don't know I don't have any experience with it but I can imagine that that makes it necessary sometimes to kind of yeah and while I was completely willing to invent 
you know a lot of things like like an academic and his works i you know i might invent like a town in london or something in it or a borough in london i didn't but um one thing i knew i didn't want to invent at all were major historical events or even minor details of major historical events so it was important to me that everything that happens to yosef uh, sort of checks out historically um like I, I remember spending an afternoon being like really confused because i was googling the distance between um warsaw and treblinka um in earlier drafts you went to auschwitz i realized that was wrong the what those who lived in warsaw central drink has that changed and and i was like but this this is like two hours by train like and i've read so many accounts of like people being on these trains for like hours and hours and hours what's going on and i looked into it a bit more and it seems like either is a deliberate sort of torture device or through some strange like mechanical incompetence those trains did take like eight nine hours to to do this like very short journey so Things like that were like important to me. I didn't want to put someone on a train for longer than he would have been because it fits my story, if it contradicts yeah. the history. And equally, you mentioned Israel. Um, the the events that are alluded to um, in the newspaper articles that are alluded to about uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict are all accurate. And they're accurate to how they were reported at the time. And that was important to me. I didn't want to invent a flare-up in the in the you know conflict i didn't want to invent an atrocity i didn't want that seemed to me um unethical yeah within, within the ethics of, of creating a fictional world yeah yeah definitely i think i can't remember it might be my mom so she's a history teacher and then a lot of like i think partly because she teaches history in the uk it covers a lot of like nazism and the third reich yeah. and stuff we have a lot of books around our house that make make her look like a strange enthusiast like she can like rattle off the lives of all these horrible people but I think it was her maybe it was or it could have been in your book she was talking about how people knew like they knew when the trains were coming through like the specific one so they they avoided the train station so maybe that was why they they it's, took it's, so long it's in who who like the general public yeah. apparently they they had a had an idea of when these I don't know how they would have known though yeah but yeah something to do with that that's not something that i've no. come across but that i yeah um a lot a lot of that um stuff about about specifically about the trains and uh as i said i got a lot of my information from lanceman shower um yeah it was very helpful yeah i haven't seen it but i think i read a book recently i watched a film that said like it's a uh, compulsory watch mm. i don't know who it was have you read disobedience by the way no i haven't um but yeah i think it, you'd it, like it i think i would too it's it's very much i'm, I'm aware of it and yeah it's it's a hole that yeah. needs filling. it's the only book i've ever ripped a page out of like, like in frustration i was on a yeah i was on a train i was like oh my god i've never done it before in my life and as i was doing it, i was like my god like what like I'm a very neat person, but I was like, because oh you like God. hated what she was saying, or I think it's such a good one that gets under your skin. Like the characters, okay, like kind of like your characters are very like 
why are you doing that? Like they're very, you know, rigid and awkward and they're kind of going through, I guess, similar but different trials of like navigating religion and everything under like kind of like a an extreme situation. But yeah, oh my God. But there are some like really amazing bits of um, scholarship in it because the main character's dad is a rabbi, I think. Yep. So yeah it's like kind of her complex relationship with her dad's scholarship and also with like her childhood friends and anyway it's a it's a very good read and it's all north london as well i yeah i should read it i um what you're saying about you you find yourself going why are these characters doing this um it reminded i did that thing that you're supposed not to do which is like read like goodreads reviews and so on of your book mm-hmm. um i don't know i don't know what anyway someone was not a fan and they were saying that um one of the things they didn't like about the book is they didn't they didn't understand why the characters were doing anything that they did and I, I was quite pleased by this because my feeling is that that's a feeling I quite like in novels if not if people are acting in ways that are just, just bizarre or random that's is not artistically satisfying but if I can't quite get it I like that feeling and because to me that's 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 realism um in in the the reason i don't really understand why you're doing that is because i am not you and like character you know characters having the most obvious reaction to any given situation i don't know their partner cheats on them and so they break up with that partner is the least interesting thing in the world surely yeah. we all know yes obviously you break up with somebody who cheats on you what happened like that's not telling whereas the character who does something i'm like what really you're gonna do that but i but crucially but i do believe it on some level i'm like i don't know why you're doing this but i sort of get that you would do that that's what i hoped what i aim for in in, in fiction yeah the in in yellow face she talks about doing that exact same thing with goodreads being like not gonna look at not gonna look at, oh yeah. i've i've seen it but I've... i think they they don't feel like new people I think it's more like that like you do explain everything they do yeah um but they're like sort of like Hannah you get a good idea of where she's coming from from that first date and the second date but you don't need her entire background of her parents religion or her upbringing and the same with like I don't know even with Kate like you get a good sense of who she is like you don't introduce her name for quite a while, which is kind of, it works well because mm. you're kind of like, oh, like this is a, this is a person who's not like, hi, I'm Kate. It is I am now narrating. It's much more like you know, a, a solid account, I guess. I'm always a fan of not always, very often a fan of books, first person books where you never learn the narrator's name. I was mm-hmm. it's just always like quite a cool trick. I've never been able to do it. I've always felt like, oh, so like, because I think it has to, I think for it to work, the reader has to get to the end and go, huh, I never did learn their name. <laughs> Rather than like, this author's very obviously just not telling me the name, which is how yeah. it's always come across when I've tried to do it. So, I, you know, um, but I think that, that, I don't know, there's something about that nameless narrator that feels, I, I almost i think allows the reader more easily to sort of like inhabit that narrator somehow um yeah. in quite quite a sort of exciting way i guess it's a bit like fleabag like you don't realize 
the names you know what I mean like you don't yeah. think about it until you're trying to talk about it and you're like oh it's not Phoebe Waller-Bridge it's yeah someone and then someone will be like oh yeah they don't do names and you're like oh yes then you know yeah yeah it's like a a, a classy way of doing it I guess it is but but yeah but that's the point you only you only realized it when you had the conversation you weren't yeah. like watching this like when is Phoebe Waller-Bridge gonna introduce herself you know yeah I had that with Kate I think I was like oh I don't know this person's name and then a couple of pages later I was like oh now I know this person's name rather than being like yeah it didn't feel too gimmicky or anything which was nice yeah yeah um, how do you develop those different voices by the way because they're all very distinct um is in like the the like voices of narration or like how they speak in dialogue I guess both like with the narration the third person narration is that Kate telling the story or is that kind of because you get a really amazing insight into each character's mm. voice even though it's third person yeah what uh, was your thinking there so I mean uh is it Kate telling the story um again I think it's sort of up for readers it's sort of a yes or no there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a couple of novels that I had in mind uh one is American Pastoral by Philip Roth where um the beginning of that book um I don't know if you've read it but uh there is a first person narrator who is Nathan Zuckerman who's like going about and he meets he meets Seymour Lvov the Swede who's the main character of the book and like they hang out and it's like it's a, it just is a first person narrative and about 50 pages in um Nathan Zuckerman your narrator completely disappears and it becomes a third person um narrator who can tell us everything about the Swede we can see in his mind and also can see in the minds of other characters now it's impossible for nathan zuckerman to literally know these things but we sort of accept i mean nathan zuckerman is himself a novelist so in a sense it's just a work of metafiction but we sort of accept or i accept that like this like first person narrator has somehow like transcended himself and like become this like wonderful third person narrator um and the precedent for that is um which Roth actually talks about is Madame Bovary where um in the first page of Madame Bovary there's this I character who's like at school with Charles Bovary who is not mentioned again after like page two and like that I character somehow knows the innermost thoughts not just of Charles Bovary but also of Emma Bovary of you know um to go back to your question is Kate telling the story it was important to me that I had the total freedom to go as close to my characters as I wanted to um and to go into their minds and to be able to sort of narrate what I could see there um and I I don't know I, I tried getting rid of Kate as a narrator altogether and just making that section another third person section but I think I needed yeah I think I needed something of the um fallibility and the partiality of a first person voice in the book someone who is you know only only giving us their best guess yeah it's like when um uh Tavia says no one in this house is a reliable narrator and you're suddenly yeah. like oh, but Kate's our narrator <laughs> like what's real as I was yeah yeah I mean it's quite you know if, if one word being thematic about the book I do think that line's probably um, worth highlighting um because because that is partly what what i'm interested in is the sort of um 
strange sort of space between various subjectivities you know and and it, any any story is is controlled to an extent by the teller so when you get like you know multiple tellers that kind of complexes complicates yeah. things and it's very true of ghost stories it is very true of ghost stories they're, they're very like individual and very like circumstantial yeah and often you know ghost stories and sort of frame narratives go hand in hand don't they as well and thinking yeah. like turn of the screw you have um i can't remember who it is but someone at this sort of maybe it's a sort of henry jamesy type character at this sort of dinner party where people start telling ghost stories and then and then he's given i think the manuscript of the book by someone who knew the woman who's written it's quite a sort of nest of boxes again yeah yeah that's always quite fun i don't know if you've read the satiricon there's only like bits of it. No, I haven't. Yeah. So Tramalchio's Banquet is like mostly as is. And the narrator is like one of the most unreliable narrators ever. And it's kind of from his older self, but also includes like kind of his younger self's perspective. And his younger self is just like the worst and he has no idea what's going on. But it's very like subtle. So there's like a degree to which he's matured. Like when he's narrating but also he hasn't so some of the things like you basically you leave the whole narrative thinking was he the one with no taste who didn't understand that these people were joking and therefore thought they were like horrendously nouveau riche or was it a bit of both like it's a really yeah. interesting kind of and it's so old it's like two thousand years old and you're like oh I guess like that's always like a human struggle i'm gonna come out of this uh interview with a with a good good reading list um, well yeah i would say that one's definitely a fun yeah. one to read there's the fellini satiricon there I've, I've, which i've not i'm a big fellini fan but i've not seen yeah. that one yeah it's a weird one but it's but it's bizarrely accurate despite like it deviates a lot and it has all these other things but it captures like the really like i don't know strange vibe yeah no it's a good read definitely especially if you like like layered narratives i do Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. Well, uh, actually, last thing I wanted to ask you would be advice that you would give, I guess, like yourself when you started the novel. Um, I think uh, it could sound a little cheesy, but the but the the best advice is is I think for any any young aspiring writer, and definitely for me, um, w- would have been keep going. Um. The thing, the thing that would have stopped this book, um, is me giving up on it as I nearly did many times. Um, I think that maybe this becomes less true when you're like four books in and you're very, very experienced. I don't know, but books have to be bad for a long time before they're good. Um, I think especially if you're a beginner writer and the only way is it, it's going to become good is by keeping working on it. Um, yeah. And so just, I think, I think in a way that's like the difference between people who make really good stuff and people who don't is the people who make really good stuff are like what willing to, for it to be bad for longer. <laughs> you know, I don't think, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to generalize about novelists. Maybe some novelists just sit down and write a book as easily as you would read a book, but I sort of doubt it. No, I suspect not. I mean, um, Stevenson with Jekyll and Hyde and he, he burned the first version he wrote he like sat he had like a yeah. fever wrote it in three days was like to his wife this is the best thing i've ever written and she went why oh, is no 
<laughs> he was so upset that he burned the whole thing. And then, I don't know, I think she was maybe like, no, no, like, just, there was just a few Revise things that didn't work. <laughs> yeah, 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 like, just, like, edit it a bit more. And then he wrote the whole thing out again, which is, so I guess, yeah, everyone has that experience. Yeah. It's always, it's always nice to hear, like, especially writers that you admire greatly doing, like, five six drafts or something like oh yeah they they got it wrong like five times before they like apparently austin's grammar was really horrible it's really hard to imagine that he's sort of my uh, my image of austin is this incredibly like pedantically correct person (laughs) you know (laughs) he's just like sort of speaks in very like correct sentences and is quite blunt and i don't know that's i don't know where that comes from that's my image of her and i imagine her like always being exactly right grammatically so Obviously, that's nonsense, but... Um... Everyone's human, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she was really well-spoken, and then when she wrote down, she was just like, do you know what? I don't need a comma here. Screw it. I don't know. Well, well, thank you so much. I, yeah, I love the book, and I can't wait to uh, hand it around my friends and then demand my copy back, which I suspect I'll have to do. Great, yeah. And, you know, it, it's going to be out uh, February 23rd. Yeah. So encourage them to buy their own copies as well i oh, bloody will yeah. <laughs> like no you're not having mine off you go <laughs> good well, have my a sales pitch done. you too yeah yeah very good sales pitch <laughs> Bye. Bye. thank you very much for listening another wonderful author that i have been privileged to talk to i hope you loved hearing that And I hope you get so much out of these. I'm so excited sharing every episode with you. And yeah, I just hope you go and read this book because I can't stop thinking about it, basically. And I can't wait for you to read the other books that are on this series. I just love, I've talked about it before, but I love the idea that each one of these books could be the one book you read for the entire year and you will remember it for years to come. Coming up, we have more music interviews, we have more authors, we have more artists, we have curators. I cannot wait to keep going. Enjoy the rest of your day.